Our first reading is the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the shepherd shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word of the Lord. The song uh, is written like this, city sidewalks, busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style, strings of streetlights, even stoplights, blinking bright red and green as the shoppers rush home with their treasures. Hear the snow crunch, see the kids bunch. This is Santa's big day. And above all this bustle you hear, great expectations. (laughs) Christmas carries great expectations. You can't not bring your expectations. If you've grown up in a, in a tradition, in a culture that embraces Christmas and the Christmas season, like most of us have in the West, and especially if you've grown up in a Christian home of some sort, and what we bring to every Christmas season is all the expectations of past Christmases. And so you come into any season with traditions and experiences and friends, and family time, and everything that you do must bring ultimate joy. And there's things that have to be done at certain times and in certain ways, right? It's, you, you decorate on this day. The, the tree gets decorated in this order. You have to watch that movie. And there's family liturgy in many families on Christmas Eve and on Christmas morning, even all throughout the Christmas day. You know, you, you go to the early church service and then you get Chinese carryout. Or no, you spend all evening at your cousin's. Or you, you have this great family dinner, but you go to the midnight mass and then you open a present. Everyone has their liturgies. Kids, especially elementary age, the ones that just went out, they usually enter Christmas with visions, not of sugar plums, but of presents. And it's presents under the tree that are more than they can actually get. And, and so what o- often happens is kids arrive on Christmas morning and they don't say it. I mean, they're excited, but usually by the end, they, they wonder inside, w- weren't there more presents last year? 
I hope they don't say it, but. And part of the problem is it, our expectations are built on memories. And our memories of Christmas or of anything tend to merge all the good things into one singular memory. And so maybe you only got eight presents last year, but you're imagining all 64 you've had over the previous eight years of your life. No Christmas season can support the weight of need and desire and hope that we place on it. And so many of us experience entering into, or afterwards, Christmas dissonance. This is especially true if your life has experienced loss, a season of difficulty, or even you come to that point in your life when your desires, as you see them and hope they would be, are just unmet. You're not where you thought you would be. Your career, your family, it's not what it, it was supposed to be. And so you enter into a Christmas season with just ache, right? Now, there's a difference between um, acute sharp pain and deep ache, and I, at least in my thinking on it, you know, there's a sharp pain or a dull ache. And the sharp pain is the kind like when you get stuck by a tack or something, you, you might screech or scream or c cry out. A dull ache is something different. I remember my first ACL surgery 20 years ago when I came out of the epidural post-surgery in the kind of post-op room. It, they di hadn't gotten medicine to me yet, and it was slowly wearing off. And I didn't shriek or cry out. There wasn't a sharp pain. It was this dull ache that began in the knee and started radiating till my whole body was just tense with the pain, and I, I almost couldn't talk or breathe. I think if you have experienced loss, if you've experienced difficulty or un unmet desires, that sort of an ache that just tenses you can just permeate your life. And certainly at a time like Christmas, when the, the things that are missing feel so obvious. And that's why to me, Advent is such a gift. You know, Advent actually, some of you might not know this, but Advent in the traditional sense points to the second coming of Christ, not his first at Christmas. It points to the time when Christ will come to right all wrongs and restore all things as they are meant to be. And to me, Advent, Advent matches real life a lot better than songs about chestnuts and silver bells and Santa Claus coming to town. And that's why sometimes you'll find a lyric or two hidden beneath the first verse in a Christmas carol that's actually an Advent lyric. It came upon a midnight clear, has several of these verses that I think are just beautifully profound in their Advent longing. Verse four of it came upon a midnight clear says, and ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now. For glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. Silver bells sound great if you're winning in life. If everything's going well, if you've got the money, if you can put off the Christmas, if everything's right in your home. But words like this seem to ring a lot more true for those who are suffering or sick, who've dealt with loss, for the refugee, for the dying. Advent has the ability to infuse 
the heaviness and sadness of life, which we all experience at times, and the, the recognition that this world is broken. It's, it's not right. We know it. But it infuses it with hope. It doesn't just leave it in the darkness because it presents that hope of the light to come. Isaiah 11, which we're looking at this morning, is an Adventy passage, if you would. It points to the time when the Messiah would come, but really it points to the time when the Messiah would come again to right all wrongs. As we look at it, I want to break it apart with three different areas. What, what do we really want, not just expectations at Christmas? What do we really want? What do we truly need, and what can we already have? What we really want, I would say, is not just a really good Christmas, right? What we really want is heaven. And we get that in these verses that, that Isaiah gives us in the very strange uh, you know, animal zoo version of, of heaven. In verses 6 through 9, we read, On that day, one day, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze their young, shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is very earthy stuff, right? This This is not angels on clouds. This is here, things we recognize, wolf, lamb, cow, bear, child, this is very earthy creation, but it's, it's the creation very different than we've ever experienced it or can imagine it. And there's a Hebrew um, idea behind it. It's not actually mentioned in this passage, but what's being described here in this very vivid language can be summed up in a Hebrew word, shalom. Most of you know, we've talked about it here before. I, in many very basic ways, it means peace, right? Peace be with you, shalom. But the Hebrew concept behind that, the biblical Old Testament idea of shalom is harmony. When things are as they should be. When you and all those around you are whole and complete. Physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. And it involves flourishing and growth and fruitfulness and joy. Shalom. Isaiah says, they shall not hurt or destroy. When this time comes, there will be no more suffering, no more violence, no more pain, no more death, because there will be no more sin. He directly pushes on this in an imagery that you could pass over if you read it too quick in verse 8. And he says, the child will play with the cobra. It's not an accidental phrasing. It's not just two things that shouldn't happen, right? In Genesis 3, the embodiment of Satan, of evil, is a serpent that deceives Adam and Eve, and they sin. And in that brokenness, God brings the curse down upon humanity. Cursed is the serpent, and you will live in enmity, division, with the woman's child. He will, you will strike his heel and he will step on your head. We live in a fallen and cursed world. We are fallen and broken people. We know it. But what Isaiah is pointing to is the day when God lifts the curse 
and restores us to the Eden that we were meant to live in, the shalom that we long for. You know, all those memories that you build together at times like Christmas, and you think about all of the ideas as as a kid of what, what Christmas is supposed to be about and when you do things, or in fact, any of your good memories usually are a combining of all the good memories into one thought or idea. When you think about somebody you love, a parent or a child or somebody you long for and, and aren't here anymore, you often are taking all of your good memories of them and pushing them into one that maybe if they were actually still here, they couldn't live up to. No life experience can often live up to our memories. And that's because, as C.S. Lewis suggests, it's possible that our memories our memories are an imagination of all the good that is to come. Memories, he writes, are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. He's suggesting that our good memories and even our positive expectations are actually a longing for heaven. What we desire most in daily life, what we tend to desire or seek after are things like success or family happiness or comfort or pleasure or fun. Things that are good but are only a shadow of what we're really made for. God intends, according to this passage, to restore and renew all things. To give us what we really want and what we're truly made for. But of course, the problem is we live in dissonance. We live where our expectations don't live up. The reality doesn't live up to our expectations. We have these memories and we can't restore them. Things fall apart and break apart. We and the world around us are not okay, and we know that. And I've found in my own life, and I'm guessing it's true in yours, there's a deep chasm between the depth of our longings in life, what we want in life, and the fulfillment of them. Even when you get something you're really after, it doesn't tend to live up to the depth of our need for it. That chasm is because of our fallen and brokenness. In that original fall, Adam and Eve, our parents, they reject God. God expels them from his presence. And the world is broken and sinful, and we are too. And because of the fall, because of the sin in our own lives and all around us, I I would say that our desires, the things we long for, are also broken. So what I mean is this. We could say this is what I want in life, but what I want is probably a broken want. It's a broken desire. The fall suggests that all of our desires are in some way marred and broken. What I think I need may not be what I'm actually intended for. It would even go so far as to say probably, probably, if everything plays out as God is trying to lay out here, that our very nature is fallen too. And that would include our genetics. Like you're physically broken, you're breaking down. So everything about you is broken. Your desires, your emotions, your genetics. And and you can see this in some obvious ways, right? Like, there's genetics that tie to alcoholism, to a sweet tooth, even to violence, potentially. What if what you want, what you're made for, 
evolutionary theorists, they have identified that men, on average, men, on average, are predisposed genetically to prefer multiple partners. You're made for it. Go ahead. Why not? Why not? Because what God is saying here as he's laying out the image of what is to come is that our desires are broken. Our desires are bent away from God and his purposes. We say, I want what I want. And we seek Eden or heaven on our own. But we are separated from God by our nature, the very thing that we really want because it's what we really need. What we truly need, and Isaiah lays it out, is knowledge. Now, don't get hung up on that, but hear what it says in verse 9. The earth, on that day, when all these things happen, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Knowledge, in a Hebrew understanding, is not academic wisdom or reason or things, facts that you can add up. Knowledge in a Hebrew understanding is relational and experiential. It is personal. To know and be known is to love and be understood and loved. It's commitment and assurance of acceptance. We look for this type of being known, this sort of knowledge, in family and friends, which are good things. But no friend, no marriage, can meet the depths of our need and desire to be known. Because every other person, even those we're deeply committed to, are going to fall short, and so are we. We need a relationship with the God who will not let us go, who will know us and love us forever. One day, the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is a strange phrasing. N.T. Wright gives us some insight into it when he says, how can the waters cover the sea? They are the sea. I've thought that actually for a long time. So I was like, when the waters cover the sea, that's strange, right? He says, yes, they are the sea. It looks as though God intends to flood the universe with himself, as though the entire cosmos was designed as a receptacle for his love. God intends, in the end, to fill all creation with his own presence and love. God is intending, in the end, not to destroy it all, but to enter and embrace it. He did that at his first coming. He will do it again in full at his second. We need to experience God and his presence with us. We need the knowledge of God. We need to know and be known by him. But of course, this world is sinful and fallen and broken, and so are we. So by nature, we are apart from God. And that's why we need the second thing that I think Isaiah is talking about here, which is judgment. In verses 3 through 5, he writes about the Savior, the Messiah. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with his, the breath of his lips shall he kill the wicked. 
judgment is necessary to right wrongs. And we talk about that in a word that we tend to like better in the modern world, which is justice. But underneath justice is judgment. And it's interesting how here the, the writer, Isaiah, is highlighting God's bentness towards the poor and the meek. It's not God will judge the poor, it's God will judge for the poor. Anybody who deals in justice realms understands that the poor are disproportionately facing injustice in the world, and they always have been. That word meek literally means bent low. So it's God will judge for the poorest of the poor and those who are being crushed under life's load, who are bent down, who can barely stand up. God's heart throbs, beats throughout Scripture with a bentness towards the poor and the crushed and the bent low. Part of this feels really good for all of us because every one of us agrees the violent and the oppressor need to be judged. But who decides, right? Who decides who the violent and the oppressor are and who needs to be judged? This judge will judge in righteousness. And that's an important phrase there because when that word is used, it's talking about truth and rightness. But truth and rightness and righteousness in scripture is always defined by God. We tend to think of justice on our own terms. This is what's fair and equitable. If you're on a playground and you're a kid, you have a sense of justice. But I'm not sure it's righteous justice. God's justice is what's being talked about. So judgment and justice is not just our own opinion or our cultures or the governments. You know, this is something that Martin Luther King Jr. knew. He doesn't just point to justice in some way that he's defining it. He actually goes back to scripture. And he identifies that justice is found in and through God. You know, there's that famous phrase that he, he used multiple times that said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The original time he wrote that was in this context when he wrote, evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but the same Christ arose and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of moral, the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Justice is defined by the God who dies on a cross. God alone determines justice. And Isaiah is suggesting that we shouldn't be so quick to figure out who we think needs justice, which is usually not us. The original hearers of this, and in the years later, even in Jesus' day, they would have read this passage and thought, yes, we are ready for the Messiah to come and bring judgment on all of them. Isaiah is suggesting that the writing that this world needs is much deeper and wider than we assume. Things are broken in every culture and in every person. We need God's true justice to reconcile us to him so we can have what we really need and want. And in that sense, we need the Messiah. In verses 1 and 2 and verse 10, 
there's the prophetic word of a Messiah coming, and it uses the phrase, the, the sprout from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall come from Jesse, the root of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. Israel went through a several hundred year period between the prophecies of Isaiah and the time of Jesus when they really didn't have a king like uh, in the throne, the throne line of David. And there was a longing that, that a King David would come again. He would be God's anointed and he would bring peace and judge all the enemies and cast them all out. But when he did come, when he did come, when this was fulfilled, the world didn't recognize him. But in Jesus, this is fulfilled. In Jesus, God entered fully fallen humanity and a bent down and broken world. God did not say, I've got to stay away from that. He jumped in into our lives, the sort of lives we live and all of our ache and struggle and suffering. And he brought justice by bearing judgment for our sin. That's the good news of the gospel. And through Jesus, God offers us shalom, the chance to be reconciled and restored to our creator. All of this is already ours according to Christmas, but it is not yet ours in full according to the Advent longing for him to come again. So what can we have already? How do we live into these promises and hopes that are far off but can already be taken advantage of now? Now that's one of the reasons why um, I like this passage because it's really talking about a this world sort of thing. It's a very dirty hand sort of thing. Animals, kids playing. That's the vision of the future. A sacrament a sacrament, in a technical wording of it, is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. It's a physical thing through which God can operate, like bread or wine or water at baptism. But something can also be sacramental in the sense of it points you to God or is a way in which God speaks to you, a physical, real thing, life experienced. And what I think both Advent and and a sacramental view of the world gives us is that creation matters. This world matters. You're not here just to escape. You're not here just to bide your time. This world and the life we live matters, and we can experience God even in the most mundane of things. N.T. Wright elsewhere wrote this, the world is a beautiful place, not just because it hauntingly reminds us of its creator, but because it is pointing forward. It is designed to be filled, flooded, drenched in God as a chalice is beautiful, not least because of what we know it is designed to contain. Or a violin is beautiful, not least because we know the music of which it is capable. God has given us, given us this life to experience now what he has in store for us in the future to get a taste of who he is and what life is meant to be. I know I've experienced this in friendship where shared experiences and joys and sorrows together, years as friends, being known and cared for, 
is a way in which I see God operating. Good friendships can be sacramental in that sense. Eugene Peterson talked about it. Friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It is every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. Like the sacramental use of bread and wine, friendship takes what is common in humanity in human experience and turns it into something holy. And in this sense, I think that much of the life that we live now, when oriented towards an Advent view, day in and day out, much of the joys of this life can be an appetizer of the world to come. Reading a great novel, the joy of being at, at that perfect night of a completed, vac- uh, of a perfect vacation with your family, like that, that great vacation. When you've finished a project at work and you feel like you did a good job, like I did that well. Or even <laughs> a night of sledding with good friends. Like those joys in life, the deep ones, the simple ones, are an appetizer of the eternity that is to come. They are thin places, as the Celtics talked about it, where the veil between earth and heaven seems to disappear, and you get a glimpse. And if you're looking, you can see God moving in the thin places in your life. Advent invites us into that sort of a daily life. It also calls us to envision what Eden will look like in the places in which we occupy now. At the end of time, how will this world look different? How will your neighborhood, your home, your office, your school look different? And to work towards the justice and shalom that is envisioning that Eden. What I'm talking about this morning is not just practicing Advent, by the way. But it's understanding the God behind the advent. You know, modern culture loves Christmas Jesus, right? Sweet baby, cuddly Jesus lying there in the manger. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. We don't actually like advent Jesus, but we need advent Jesus. We need the Jesus who is coming as Savior and Lord and judge. In that sense, we need Advent more than Christmas. Advent is full of paradoxes, darkness and light, rejoicing while watching, longings and hope. Those times when even the sorrows and pain of life can be a window into the goodness and grace of God. You know, many of you know that a number of years back, uh, in 2015, a good friend of mine died this past week, Brian. He was part of our church family here. And I remember when he was first diagnosed, and about a year or so later, there was one of these advents when I was up late at night praying by the fire, Christmas tree, and some carols were playing on on the CD player. And it was in the lyrics of those carols that I heard the advent longing, the brokenness of this world, And I remember being brought to tears, thinking, I don't know that he's going to live. Just sitting in a deep sorrow and loss, years in advance of his death. Advent says that's okay. 
It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel the weight of the world around you. Four years ago, he died. And I remember the night before he died when a number of us gathered around to sing carols, say goodbye. And even in death, it's a sacred moment, a thin place. Because it was not the end. Because of Advent's orientation towards the resurrection and the restoration of all things. And even now and years since, Advent comes and I deal with his loss with ache and pain and sorrow and that deep throbbing. And Advent enables me to grieve again, but with hope. With hope. Advent's invitation. Advent's invitation and calling is to spread the justice and shalom in anticipation of eternity to those who are most bent low and sorrowful. Advent calls us in the best and joyful moments, or rather the God of the Advent calls us and says, yes, those good things, that great night, that fun with your family, those good things are what is to come. Give thanks and anticipate eternity. And in the saddest and darkest moments, the God of the Advent offers us hope. He says, yes, I entered your fallen and broken world, and I have come to redeem it. And I will come again to right all wrongs. So rest, rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. Let's pray. God, our Father, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Savior and Judge, you came to restore us to you. We long for you to come again to restore all things. Orient us towards the God who bent low, walks with us, and longs for us to know him. In Jesus' name, amen.